It is a great day to be together. But then, frankly, any day is a great day to be together. And uh, Lala, I apologize. You're taller than me. And I forgot to grab my music stand, so you're going to have to adjust this when I'm done. Blame me. I'm me. November 20th, 2015. was supposed to be a great day. I started the day in Chongqing, China, meeting with some of the people that you send us to care for. Uh, It was also, full disclosure, it was also my birthday, so I was very excited to have my day planned down to the minute of how things were going to work so that I could get on the airplane at the right time, get home to make an important meeting for the school family and and parents there. I had it all timed just right, and then I was going to, my wife and, and two of our dear friends had arranged to go spend time having a quick dinner together afterward. Everything was going to go perfectly, and there, it was just going to be a, a great day of celebration. And so I got on the airplane, and for the first time in all of my trips to Chongqing, we left on time. And it was miraculous. I was like, this could work. I could show up where I'm supposed to be at the right time. And I was getting excited. And I was getting more excited as I looked at the little map and showed us making our way south and all was good in my world. And then, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry to announce that we, uh, blah, 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 we are in a holding pattern and we will not be allowed to land for the foreseeable future. (laughs) (sighs) That meant that I was going to be late for the meeting that I was supposed to pray to open. Uh, Because I had figured out my timing and I gave myself just enough time for the taxi to drive as fast as he could to get from the airport. I didn't check any bags. I did everything right, except for account for the fact that things don't always go according to our plans. So two hours later, we did land. And instead of arriving at 7.30 when the meeting started, I arrived at 9.45 when the meeting finished. Which, you know what, that's okay. Meetings aren't that fun anyway. No, but but then I got to spend time with people. But the whole time I was sitting on that airplane, all I could think of was there's a million things I could do that are more important and better than this. And I know, like each time we would make our circle around, I don't know the exact flight pattern. Uh, I'll have to ask Ron or John or some of our pilots. But I I kept thinking, I'm looking at the lights. That's where I need to be. Why am I stuck up here? And it was so hard knowing that my departure, my wife, my birthday celebration, my friends were down there and I was over here. And that got me thinking, uh, is I've thought about our, our years together as a church family. We continue to move forward, but we also wonder just at what pace the Lord is leading us and how is he leading us when we don't quite know how all the pieces are going to fit together. Our vision hasn't changed. When we talk about Pastor Mike preach vision, look at the front of your, or it's on the back of your bulletins, right? Yeah, the back now. Glorifying God by loving Christ, loving one another and reaching the world. That ain't gonna change as long as I'm any part of this church and the elders are any part of this church. They will not allow that to change because the glory of God is why we exist. But how we get there does. How we apply God's word to the situation we find ourselves in does change. And there can be seasons of life where we're not exactly sure how it's all going to work out. Have you ever been in that season? Yeah, okay, okay, thank you, good. A couple of you are are with me. And so as I prepared this year for our annual general meeting, 
you know what? As I talked to the Lord, I told the Lord, I've got more questions than I have answers. And his responses have been praying through this since that fateful day in November when he decided to make me late. Which, by the way, just go ahead and assume that if I'm traveling with you, you will be late. It just never fails. No matter where I go in the world, uh, I'm always... Not because of me. I've never missed an airport flight, but the airplane has never decided to be on time. Nor buses, nor taxis, nor any of them. But I think through all of that, I realize that, God, I keep trying to project my agenda and my plans onto you. And I have big plans. Personality type-wise, I'm called a strategic planner. That's how I test. In other words, I'm always dreaming about where we could go. And I'm always wanting to tell God, this is how it should look, this is how it should work, and this is how we should get there. That makes sense to me. The details in between, not so much. But the big stuff does. Yet God, in his great love for me and discipline of me, said, but Mike, who's piloting the airplane and who made the world that you're living in and who placed all of us here for such a time as this. And it was like he was reminding me time and again, all season, we're called for such a time as this and I'm calling you to myself and I'm calling you to be united as one body for my glory, not for your own. AIC could die tomorrow and that wouldn't be a big deal. But the body of Christ, the believers, the family, that we pray will never fade as long as we await the return of Jesus Christ. We are called to be one body in Christ, though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. I was talking with an American pastor recently, one that might actually be our next discipleship pastor if the Lord so opens the door. And he was asking me the question of what's it like to be an international church pastor? And I said, it has ruined me. I never want to go back and pastor in America because it'd be too boring. And what I meant by that was here, I get to be with people from all over the world from all sorts of different religious backgrounds, from all sorts of different ways of speaking what we call English. Uh, And and I get to be part of all these different things together. Yet at the end of the day, I hug my brothers and sisters knowing we're part of the family. And that is thrilling to me. And it excites me to consider how this year and in the years to come are we going to seek to live out the truth of God's word. So as the staff, the elders, uh, and under-shepherds, the governing committee, as we worked through these things, I wanted to share with you a, a few principles of where I believe God is moving us as we follow him. If you've read my annual reports, none of this should come as a surprise. This should just come as a little more of the nuts and bolts of why we feel this is where we're headed. The first thing I want to look at is the passage referred to on the title slide, and that's Romans chapter 12. Many of us know the beginning of Romans chapter 12. If you grew up in the church, uh, we're told to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. And most times when I quote that verse, I get amens, because it is exciting to say that I'm going to offer my life to the Lord, right? That in Christ, we should be excited about that. But then there's the great question that should follow that. How am I going to do that? And then it gets a little more quiet. 
So I want to paint a picture. I am not a painter. We've got those in our midst, and I'll let them do the actual real painting. But I want to give you a picture of who you are. And then I want to put that together and say, this is how we're called to respond. Did you know, for instance, as we talked about a couple years ago, that you indeed are a masterpiece? My daughter and I were uh, upstairs in the bathroom this morning. She was fixing her hair, and I was doing the same because there's a lot of it. And I finished up and I whispered to myself, man, I'm good looking. And she heard me and she just sort of chuckled. And she said, dad, do you say that often? And I said, yep, every morning. Because I'm the only one that thinks it. And I responded, but yet when God looks at me, he sees his creation knowing that he made me exactly how I'm meant to be. Do we believe that? I want to start there this morning as we walk through where we're supposed to be as a church because pastors come and go. I don't plan on going, so please don't read into what I just said. But we do come and go. But the body of Christ is to continually move forward and we have to know who we are in Christ. That's key. God says, I fearfully and made you. And as you've heard me say before, that doesn't mean he looked down and said, ah, what did I do? It means with great attention to detail, He numbered the hairs on your head, or lack of. He planned every part of who you are. Personality, he made you an introvert. He made you an extrovert. He made you this way or able to function in this context or that. God did these things on purpose, but not just so you could be awesome. So that in Christ, you would bring glory to him by how you use his creation to honor him. Let me follow that up with the doctrine behind it. Our lives are not our own, but in Christ, our bodies are a temple of the most high God. Therefore, how we use our gifts, our abilities, and our health, or lack thereof, should point the world to the wonderful majesty of the kingship of Jesus Christ. How we live in difficult times such as these should show the world the majesty of Jesus Christ. It was interesting. um, We were in our community group last night, and I will talk uh, about community groups a little later on in the morning. But one of the things that came up is we were mourning the loss of uh, one of our couples. uh, The the wife's mother had just passed away. And and Steve, the husband, was sharing the, the two different kinds of responses. On the one hand, uh, Steve and his wife rejoiced knowing that, that Pat, the mom, was in glory, that she was enjoying heaven, that as her days drew to a close, it's very evident that the Lord gave her visions of eternity, and that was exciting, and they could rejoice with her. Are they sad that they've lost mom? Absolutely. God doesn't say, I'm taking away the grief. But the grief leads us to rejoicing, knowing that this isn't the end, but the beginning for those in Christ. On the other hand, there's another family member that does not yet believe in Jesus. And it was very hard and very dark and very painful for them to walk through that. And the question was raised was, why is it so different? And the answer is simple. Because we know who we are in Christ And we can rejoice knowing that we're not building for the next few years, but as I've been saying a lot lately, we're building for eternity. And that excites me. So with that, I want to read these verses you'll find on the screen. 
And this is just a fraction of the passage, but it says this, Paul writing to the church in Rome, uh, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we though many form one body. Now I have heard that talked about a ton. In fact, I have been talking about that with youth, young adults, uh, adults, and everybody in between really all of my ministry days. Uh, But... That part comes easy. We know we're supposed to be together. We know we're supposed to be supporting one another. We know we're supposed to be in this together. Uh, You know, it's it's like the old turtle song. It's you and me and me and you. So happy together. Yeah, you don't want me to sing anymore, but you get the idea. But what I rarely hear is what comes next. Because this speaks to accountability. This speaks to doing life together even when it's expensive. And I don't mean cost as far as financial, sometimes maybe, uh, but much more when it comes to timing or when it comes to walking through the, the difficult seasons of life. Because what does Paul remind the church? And each member belongs to all the others. Now, I want to be clear to avoid any confusion. This isn't referring to church membership here. This is anyone that calls in the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is referring to the church universal. Uh, Now, Paul is specifically referring to a local church body, but we are members of the body of Christ all over the global world. That should thrill us. Okay, I love that idea that right now, anywhere in the Asian continent and the uh, South Asian subcontinent, all these regions, people have gotten up this morning and decided that Sunday's the time they are going to worship the Lord. And then as the day goes on, people all over the world will come together at church. And others in parts of the world that we're not familiar with or don't know, people are worshiping quietly in house churches. People are worshiping, risking their very lives because the light of Jesus Christ has been revealed to them in some level and they are worshiping together and we are members of that family. And that is exciting. But then we bring that down to the small, the micro level and we look around each other in this room and say, I belong to you. Pop artists for 50 years have been singing about it and they've done a lot better than the church has at understanding that in a love-based relationship, in a justice-based relationship where we have been purchased and adopted at a price, we belong to one another. So what's that mean for the church? It means if you don't use the abilities and gifts you've been given, you're not just missing out on what God has for you. You're actually cheating the church. It'd be like if I have this arm, but I just leave it down to my side and walk around. Now, I am ambidextrous, so I can use my left hand, no problem. But I'm not fully functional, am I? When people walk into churches and visitors walk into churches for the first time, one of the things they want to see is how well does the church meet this need or function in this way? And often, sadly, we've become very consumer-driven in how we look at church to where we want to make sure that it has what we want to make us happy. But at the end of the day, there is some truth to how are we meeting the needs of our own family? How are we caring for others and then inviting them to care for the world around them? That's very much a part of what the church is called to do. 
It means if, if we've got gifts, we use them. And everyone at the moment of salvation was given spiritual gifts. And we're called to use those. And I know, I know we can be busy and I know it can be tiring and I know that sometimes in the past churches can take so much time and energy that we've overdone it and we've become almost what's called legalistic in how we do things. In other words, we've set up, if you don't do this, 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 and this, you're not a good Christian. Well, I want to simplify it. I want to say that as members of each other, our highest calling is to bring glory to God by interacting with one another and with our world in a way that shows him the majesty with which he used to create us. That takes work because every day I wake up and I'm thinking, well, I don't feel very good or it's these overcast days. Am I the only one that would rather stay in bed all day? I would much rather just stay in bed and chill because it's gross out and there's not much to do but we're called to more than this. How do we know what we're called to? That's the next question people often ask me. "Uh, Mike, tell me what the will of God is for my life. And I'll be like, oh, that's easy. He wants you to glorify him. But yeah, but specifically, what what does he want me to do? And I'll say, well, he wants you to make disciples of all nations. Yeah, but yeah, but... And it just keeps going and they want me to give them a very specific plan for such a time as this. And they want me to tell them that your job right now is to vacuum the carpet. But yet it's, it's, it's not quite that hard if we really look at the scriptures because we're invited to respond to what God is doing in our hearts, in our lives, in what he is teaching us through his word. And so our response should be much more like Philip. If you flipped in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, toward the end of the chapter, you would read this amazing story of Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But basically what is happening is an angel of the Lord came to Philip and told him, go this way and do what I tell you. And so what does Philip do? He went. Now, Let's back up for a second. And I am not trying to be guilt-inducing Pastor Mike this morning, but it may happen, and so let's go with that. We know that when God tells us to do something, we should do it, right? You with me so far? And God tells us to do things that will bring glory to himself and will give us the fullest life he created us for, correct? Okay? How are we doing at making disciples of all nations? Who in your life right now are you discipling intentionally? God, uh, Mike, whatever my name is, what is God's will for my life? God's will for your life is to chase people down and respond to what God calls you to in his scripture. What did Philip do? God gave him a specific call. I was meeting with a man that trains and works with Christian workers in the most difficult areas in this part of the world and the Middle East. And he was saying time and again that God is revealing himself to people. And when they show up, one of the first questions they're asked is, I've had this vision or this dream of a man in white. Can you tell me what that means? And time and again, these Christian workers that are versed in this can explain very clearly what that means. 
Sounds an awful lot like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Imagine, chariots going along the road. They couldn't go very fast because the roads weren't good. And there's this creepy guy just kind of walking next to it, just kind of being a stalker for a minute. What's going on? And then all of a sudden, Philip hears the man reading. Now remember, back then, limited copies of scrolls were available. Everyone didn't have the Bible and certainly didn't have the Bible app. But few people, and because this man was a a, a eunuch and in the royal treasury of a queen, this man had access. And as Philip is walking next to this chariot, he hears the very word of God being read. Isaiah chapter 53. Now, if Philip hadn't been a creature of the word of God, would he have known what was being read? If Philip hadn't been studying scriptures, would he have known how to respond? No. Then why do 2,000 years later we keep expecting God to tell us where to go when we don't want to spend time in his word? We keep asking God to give us a shortcut. When time and again he said, I gave you everything you're going to need and the Holy Spirit is going to open your eyes in ways you never dreamed of. Eat this book. Literally for one prophet, he had to eat the scroll. Now I'm not telling you to go home and eat your Bible. That would be weird. And that was the point when it was prophesied to do that. But look at what happens. Philip runs up to the chariot. Does he walk? No. Does he argue with God? God, are you sure? I'm slow of speech. That's what others have done. No, Philip ran. I want to be that guy. But yet I, I miss it all the time. Where we live, we live out of Hong Kong proper. We live out in Sai Kung, which is awesome. And there's not a lot of options for transportation. There's only two buses that go by, or three buses that go by us a day. Not a day, but three choices. And they go through about once each every 45 minutes. And I happen to be taking, um, going into town for some reason. I can't even remember why. And I happen to notice that three of my neighbors were standing at the bus stop. But I was so focused on getting into town and getting my agenda done and my thoughts and my stuff completed that as I looked at them, and I even waved at them, I'm like, why didn't I pick them up? I knew where they're going. They're going into town. That's your only choice. And I could have made life a little easier and brought a little light into their days. But I was so preoccupied with my own junk, which at that point was getting my hair cut and highly important, buying freshly roasted coffee beans. I did get the beans and they were a bit of a disappointment. Serves me right. But see, that's the thing. I had the opportunity before me, instead of running toward it, now I wasn't going to drive my car into the bus stop. That would have been bad. But I could have stopped taken the extra 30 seconds to let them into the car and had a little five-minute chat with them on my way. I was too busy. Philip wasn't. Philip ran to the Ethiopian eunuch that he doesn't know. He runs to a stranger and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy's like, no. And then the amazing thing comes next. Listen to what we find out as Philip goes on because this is so key for us. The Ethiopian eunuch responds, how can I, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? 
How many times have you heard people question God's word or question who God is? How could God do blah, blah, blah? But yet they quote an obscure passage or an obscure reference without understanding what was really going on. If you want a good picture of that, I highly recommend reading Nabil Qureshi's book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He walks through how he wrestled with that and pulled things out of scriptures. But then as he investigated them more fully, he realized God is in great unity. But the Ethiopian eunuch looks at Philip and says, how can I understand unless somebody explains it? And this is the passage that was read. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Anybody know who that's talking about? We're whispering it. We don't, we're not comfortable. Jesus! That's always the right answer. You haven't been paying attention long enough to me. Jesus is the right answer. Isaiah 53, I already gave you that. And it's a prophetic word of what Jesus will face five days from today on Good Friday. The eunuch didn't get it. So what does Philip do? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or somebody else? Then this is, this is amazing. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Other translation says he began from that passage and moved all the way through the scriptures telling him about Jesus. How could Philip do that if he wasn't a creature of the word? How could Philip do that if he wasn't spending time depending on the Lord in prayer? So what is our one response called to be as a church family in this day and every day of our lives? Well, it, it should be pretty simple for us. First, as we've started this, and hopefully you've been reading your word long before we started this campaign in January, but we've got to read the word in whatever language you're most comfortable in. I, I always want to remind people that while our primary language of communication at AIC is in English, if you are more comfortable studying the scriptures in Tagalog, in Putonghua, in uh, Cantonese, in any number of other dialects, Japanese, uh, any number of other languages, great. Just spend time in the word. If you wonder how can I get the word in my own language, go to www.bible.is and you will get the Bible in your language. I can almost guarantee it. And if you can't, let me know, and we'll, we'll call them and see how close they are to getting it in your language because they're working on new languages and dialects every day. The Bible is available, but we've got to read it. And, and I'll add here, Mike, you know, I struggle with reading. I'm not a great reader. I'm not a great with comprehension, but I can listen well. Great. Listen to the Bible. Again, there are wonderful ways to listen to God's word and then to interact with him as you do. But it has to begin there. God, open my heart and teach me what you would have for me. If you are following along with us, you read yesterday uh, Exodus chapter 30. And you might be getting to that point of what we call Old Testament fatigue because you're getting into where all the rules, the regulations, and the setup of the tabernacle, and then into the what's called the Levitical law are coming, hence Leviticus, the law. And all that's coming, and it can seem very confusing. Yet I want to read something to you out of Exodus chapter 30, as soon as I find it. 
because this jumped out to me yesterday and I was like, how often have I read this passage and missed just what this was doing? Exodus chapter 30, verse 10 says, once a year Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. They're talking about the altar of incense. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to us there, but yet it should as we listen further. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. That was an incomplete picture of what was to be completed through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ when his blood was shed for mankind. But if we're not in the word, we don't catch that Jesus is present in Exodus. We don't catch that God throughout the scriptures was pointing people back to himself. We've got to read the word. But we can't just read it because, you know what, um, when Melissa and I were in Bible college, we had a, a local radio station on our campus that was the most boring thing and every day, the, co- the old college president, before we were there, was supposed to give a short two-minute devotional on the radio. But he was an a absent-minded man, so he would often forget. And then he would be running for the radio station at the front of campus and would go in and do this. And he would read whatever came in front of him. Now, 90% of the time that worked great, but every once in a while, he would read something out of context and it would make no sense. And he would try to make sense out of it without putting any thought or understanding into it. Is that how we are to digest the word of God? No, but yet when I ask people or when we talk about family or devotions or this or that, how do we read God's word? to go. Now, if that's all you're doing and that's all you're ready for now, great. We want you in the word. But his word is so much richer than that. We've got to slow down and we've got to think about our response. We've got to think about what's going on. Was it natural for a man, a God-fearing Jew like Philip to talk to an Ethiopian eunuch? No, there were levels of distinction there that wouldn't have been normal, socioeconomically speaking. What else was going on? Where was he walking? And what did that do? And why was that so important? And all these things. And what happened to Philip next? Because he disappeared miraculously. And we didn't even get to that part. But then, Lord, what might you be challenging me with as I read that scripture? I gave you what came to my mind as I thought through that scripture. I had an opportunity to love my neighbors and I loved my coffee more. I won't make the same mistake again, I hope. But you get the idea. How does God... teach us as we think about what his word says? What if we thought for a minute on a, a verse I've been teaching a lot. I was out at uh, Christian Alliance's LIU campus uh, earlier in the week and I was talking about um, a few different passages, ones of which we'll talk about in a minute. And I asked people to consider how do we deal with stress in our lives? Teachers have a lot of stress. They're charged with raising up the future generations of our world and, and doing so on a daily basis when the kids don't want to be there. You know, no kid really get well, some kids get excited about school, but by and large, you know, teachers have this amazing opportunity, but challenging role, and how do we deal with the stress that comes with that? 
And I invited them to consider some of the Beatitudes as we've been working our way through them this year. Or when we deal with situations, we often are good at quoting one part of the scripture and then don't look at the totality of the scripture. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will... Right, we love that part. What comes next? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now go ahead and think, and we did this on Wednesday night. If you want to think more about how do we think and apply scriptures, come join us on Wednesday night. We pick out passages and we look at doing that. The rod was an offensive weapon the shepherd used to protect the sheep. The staff was what pulled the sheep back into the fold when they strayed. So in other words, David, the writer, the shepherd himself, not the good shepherd, that's Jesus, the writer of Psalm 23 is saying, God, your staff that draws me back to yourself, that hook that grabs me by the neck and draws me back, that comforts me. That staff protects me. That rod disciplines me, and I am grateful for that. We don't always like to think about that part. We've got to think about what those scriptures mean as we live them out. And then I was talking uh, last week uh, with our new members and, and we were in class upstairs and Pastor Harris was finishing up and I was able to join them for a few minutes and one of them just said, I just want to invite people into prayer. She said, if that's all I could do, that would be great. Or I can't remember exactly how she said it, but that's what she was getting at. But when we read the scriptures, we beg God, Lord, Teach us, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Instruct us in the way we should go. And you know what he promises? When we ask for wisdom, he will give it without reproach. He will give it. He will instruct, he will teach. But here's the thing. In church today, again, I was with this guy, a a missions worker last week, and he was saying, you know, we are awfully afraid of the Holy Spirit because what if he does something that's not normal? And then we were talking a little bit more and he says, but what if the not normal is us not depending on him? And he's just waiting to do more and we haven't offered our lives to him. Man, that hit me right in the chest. Am I praying for God to show me visions of where he's leading us? Am I begging him to open my eyes to things left unseen so far? And I'm saying, Lord, I'll go. Because then what are we called to do as we pray it out? We're called to respond and live obediently. The word of God is here for us to give us the best possible way to live. The way to live full of joy. As I look out there, and I I don't want to offend you because many of you in your hearts are much more joyful than this. But as I look out there, I don't see people really excited with life right now. Now again, maybe you're melancholic by personality, in which case... It's on the inside, but it doesn't show up outside. That's okay. But by and large, do people see that we are thrilled to be children of the Most High God? How would we know that if we are not creatures of the Word and responding to what He's leading us to? We can be really good about knowing it, but if we're not obeying it, we're an awful lot like the the one group of people Jesus had the most criticism for. And that scares me that I could be like that. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I want to be a needy Samaritan woman that when Jesus comes and spends time with her, she goes and sins no more. 
I want to be able to crawl up into his lap and enjoy him as Mary did. She got the one thing, the knowing Jesus. Martha was doing good things, but Mary was enjoying the very presence of the Messiah. How do I learn to do that? I spend time intellectually and prayerfully studying the word of God and then responding to what he says. What is God calling our church to? That. If we start begging God to reveal where he's leading us through the pages of his scripture, he will never fail. And he will open us and he will refine us. And it might not always be easy, but he will be at work. The next thing that the word of God challenges us with is the idea of restoration. We're called to be people that belong to each other. That means we have one heart, and that's the very heart of God. And so as we look at that, what does that mean for AIC? It means blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's an internal blessing. The pure in heart, I cannot make you pure. For that matter, neither can you. So let's get that straight. But the second part of that is, for they will be called the children of God. Who? The peacemakers. Again, we like the pure in heart and we like the ones that go for that. Blessed are the merciful. We want people to give us lots and lots of mercy, right? But as we study through the book of James, when he talks in James chapter 2 about favoritism, oh, we really want to be around the people that make us comfortable. Uh, I'm going to turn this amp off for now. I think that's the problem. Um, We really want to be around the people that make us comfortable or that make us feel good about ourselves or that agree with us. But in so doing, the caution throughout Scripture was that we favor those at the expense of those that are most desperately in need. There are obviously going to be times when we're connected to people that are like us. For instance, there are those of you in here that love tennis, and I love talking to you. Because I love tennis. Does that make it bad that we get along and we talk tennis? No. Because that's, God gave us a joined interest and that brings us together. But if we're talking tennis and someone is collapsed on the ground next to us and we're too busy talking about who's ever going to beat Novak, then we've missed the point. You see what happens? We can place our mutual affinity ahead of what God has called us to and that mercy and that peace have been missed. So when we talk, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, we pray for this internal transformation. What does that look like? Well, it starts pretty simply. Uh, You've heard me say it before and if you don't, uh, it's on Sydney's Facebook page because I know he quoted me the last time I said it, but the pillow test. Lord, is there anything I have done against you this morning, today, each night? Lord, have I sinned against you or my brother and sister in any way? That comes out of what David wrote in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We want a pure heart. It has to be a work of the Lord. And it has to come from a contrite. You know what contrition is? Do you guys know that word? Contrition isn't just the idea that, you know, if you've got a kid and he's about five to seven years old, when you tell them to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, there's no contrition 
there. They're saying they're sorry because they think that's what they're supposed to do and that will get them out of trouble, right? Contrition is what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn at their sin and it breaks them down and leads them to dependence on the Lord. That is contrition. That's what David faced when he was brought face to face by Nathan the prophet. And Nathan says, you are a murderer and adulterer and you deserve to die. And David responds, God, help me. Now, we may not be murderers and adulterers in this room, but we, we may have devalued sin to the point that we just forget that God wants to deal with us and create us so pure that we could only be washed by his blood. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we lay them at the foot of the cross and say, God, forgive me, he will purify our sins or he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Who does it? Not us. We don't do it ourselves. He does it for us. The pure in heart are those that realize their brokenness and say before God and man, I cannot do this on my own. You know what's a great picture of that? Baptism. Next Sunday, so far, I know we're baptizing at least one person. If you've never been baptized, but you're coming face to face with the reality that I know I've sinned and I know Jesus has saved me and I want the world to know that, baptism is the right step. So why not get baptized next Easter Sunday? How do you do that? Come talk to me, Pastor Eris, our under-shepherds. We would love to talk to you about that. But the point is, the pure in heart know and see the living God has changed them. The old has been made new. They are a new creation. They have been, what was so confusing to poor Nicodemus, born again. How do we learn these things and how do we learn what it looks like to be pure in heart? Again, we come back to this and we ask God to restore our hearts. Because maybe you're at a time in your life where you feel like God is very distant. Has that ever happened to you? It sure has to me. Last year was a tough year. I wondered, God, why in the world would you put me in these situations? I am not the right guy for this. I asked that, oh, I don't know, Melissa, how many times did I ask that question? A lot. (laughs) She doesn't want to answer. But the thing is, God placed me there, and I knew I could come back to him, and I knew he was in the business of refining, but I couldn't fix it myself. Am I a completed project? No, look at me. I have a ton of work left to do. But God is restoring my heart and he's drawing me back to himself and he's opening my eyes to things that I believe he's called me to and he's called us to as a family and we'll go chase that aggressively. The second part of that is the external. We long to see God, we know that, and the external is we are called to be children of God. And here's the one that for 2,000 years churches have wrestled with. Do we chase peace? Do we go after people that are hard to get along with, that have treated us poorly, or that we just don't like? Notice I'm not saying whether it's fair or not. Do we chase what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation? What is that? Doing everything in our power, even if it's expensive even if it's time-consuming, 
to show people that you will love them with the same kind of passionate, pursuing love that God gave you by becoming a man and making his dwelling among us and going to the cross, spilling his own blood for our sins and rising again victoriously so that our sins would not be crowned against us. In your minds, do you have a list of those that have wronged you? Those that deserve what's coming to them? Maybe we don't want to admit it, but we do. But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be children of God. So let me ask the question. If we're not pursuing peace, are we really children of God? That's the inverse imperative, right? If this is true and you're not doing this, then are you a child of God? I don't have a simple answer for that and I'm not going to get into that today, but it's worth asking the question. If I am not chasing peace and reconciliation in every area of my life, am I being obedient to the Lord? No, I'm not. AIC is called to be a church of peacemakers wherever that puts us. And 90% of the time, it won't be big deals. It'll be the little things. 10% of the time, you'll walk into a minefield. The term peacemaker is actually a military term. Did you know that? Peacemakers are those that go into the front lines of battle. In one way or another, they make peace. They don't hope for peace. They make peace. Not everyone is going to want to have that hard conversation that you know they need to have. Now, I am not saying go look at the speck in that other person's eye and say, you got to fix that right now. Meanwhile, you got a big old stick sticking out of your eye of this sin over here. But I am saying that if we belong to one another, we chase unholy behavior and we work with people and walk with them as God refines them. I can't clean you up. We can't clean you up, but we can walk with you as the Holy Spirit searches and shapes your heart. And if you've got it out for other people, if you're so frustrated and hung up and tired of how they've treated you, turn the other cheek. But Mike, yeah, I know, it stinks. But just maybe that thousandth time you do it, they'll see the light and love of Christ in you like never before. And it'll be like rubbing salt in their wounds, which is how Romans 12 finishes. You keep on loving your enemies even when it's hard. And the Lord might be using you to cleanse them if you'll be obedient. Finally, we've got one heart, we've got one word, and we've got one Lord. And we're begging him to revive our world. This is what Isaiah was called to write in chapter 57. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is, what's that word? Contrite. Didn't we just talk about that? Oh, look, the word of God is consistent throughout scripture in over thousands of years. Oh, that's pretty amazing. It's just God being awesome. And lowly, another word for lowly there in Hebrew and Greek, lowly uh, today translated as meek, strength that's under control, submissive to your master. 
So I live in a high and holy place, God says, but also with the one who is contrite, who is poor in spirit and meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Huh, Jesus knew what he was talking about? Yeah, he did. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. How does revival happen? It happens when people look at the depth of their depravity and their depth of the inability to fix themselves and say, God, I'm yours. Romans 12, 1. God, I will use how you've created me to shine light on you, not myself, the rest of Romans 12. And God, I will chase my enemies and love them with the unending, never bitter, never painful love that you have given me. The end of Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 13. This is the word of God. We want revival. We love to talk about revival. But Billy Graham said revival is a pretty simple act. This is what he had to say about it. Revival, well, I said this. Revival exalts God above where we've currently placed him. It always starts there. A raising of who God is in our own understanding. Revival always starts there, realizing that God is so much bigger than we know him to be. The exaltation of God. The high and exalted one says, in our daily lives, how high and exalted is God? You want revival? Start there with that very question. Then uh, Billy Graham was asked this. After a, uh, a successful meeting, Billy Graham was known to have very successful evangelistic outreaches, He was asked, is this a revival? And Billy Graham replied, no. When revival comes, I expect to to see two things which we have not yet seen. Just like the scriptures say. First, a new sense of the holiness of God on the part of Christians. What does Billy Graham expect with revival? Experiencing the holiness of God in the lives of Christians. And second, a new sense of the sinfulness of sin on the part of Christians. I was at the um, uh, member care training in Thailand last month, and I've shared a bit about that with you. And one of the things that we were talking about is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, when we have minimized the depth of our sin, when we've acted like it's not a big deal. Sin is always a big deal to God. And he says, let it break your heart, but then... Be drawn back to me with my staff being purified from all unrighteousness and go and sin no more. These are God's response to sin when we lay it before him and we let him deal with us. We beg him to revive us. We've got to deal with that. And then we beg for a movement of the Holy Spirit like we've never experienced. I know sometimes it can be scary. What if he does something weird? Great! Lord, reveal yourself to us in ways like never before. Maybe we don't see visions and miracles today because we're not looking. Because our attention isn't on him. So within our family, we pray that we will be exalting the high and holy God every time we gather together and in our daily lives. And as we look outside our family, we use our gifts, or inside our family, we use our gifts according to the grace given to us. We use those to build the church so that the church might be light in these dark times. And then in the world, what do we do? Romans 12, 21. So many people today can be discouraged by all that's going on in the world that's going wrong. I don't like looking at Facebook anymore because I'm tired of looking about politics. I'm an American. And so that's all that's coming up in my feeds. 
And I'm not the only one. There is so much darkness, sadness, and despair. And Paul warns us as people, do not be overcome by evil. Oops, sorry, I didn't give you the verse. There we go. Do not become, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We pray that God would revive us. How? Well, R.A. Torrey, a very famous revivalist preacher, said this. He said, I can give a prescription that will bring revival to any church or community or any city on earth. That sound good? Anywhere he can give a prescription. First, let a few Christians, doesn't need to be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. Kind of like what uh, Billy Graham was saying. Experience the holiness of God and the depth of our sin. This is the prime essential. If this is not done, the rest that I am to say will come to nothing. Second, let them bind themselves together in a prayer group to pray for revival until God opens the heaven and comes down. What are we going to be doing every Wednesday night over as long as it takes? Begging God to show up in new and miraculous ways. And we're going to do it with whoever will come join us on Wednesday nights for prayer. Yeah, you're busy. Come join us in prayer, those that can. And those that can't maybe look at your schedules and consider what's truly the most important. Maybe your adjustment, maybe some adjustments could be made. That's between you and the Lord. Those that can keep coming and bring friends. Third, here we go. Let them put themselves at the disposal of God for him to use as he sees fit in winning others to Christ. That's it. First, ascribe to the holiness of God. Second, Spend time in prayer, begging him to change hearts, starting with our own. Third, do what he tells you. (laughs) That's usually where revival stall, when he asks us to do something and we say, somebody else can do that. I'm a pastor, I'm told no often. What if we're the church that says, okay, God's calling me to this, I will say yes. We beg God to revive our worlds. In Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Where is AIC headed? AIC is headed toward wherever God will lead us. We'll give details as we go through our annual reports in just a few moments. But it is my prayer that we are a church family that responds to God's teaching by being creatures of his word that we see broken relationships restored because we chase peace and we chase purity in our own hearts and we live that out. And we see revival in our land because we are on our knees depending on the Holy Spirit to do a mighty work in and through his people for such a time as this. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and we trust you to guide and to lead and to direct us each day. You indeed are a great God. So as we respond, would you be leading us? Would you 